It's a liturgical New Year, Jarek. I'm allowed to No, it's not. That was like three weeks after liturgical New Year. Like three weeks ago, man. Yeah, yeah. That was so three weeks ago. Oh, four. Anyway, okay. In the beginning, I created. I think it should be okay to say Happy New Year any time between the beginning of Advent and the actual, and like the secular New Year. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Theo Table, where angels dancing on the head of a pin can change your life. I'm Aiden, also known as Celtic Catholic Fire. I'm Bea. I'm Jarek. I'm Julie. And I'm Maria. So our topic for today is Christmas. It's probably the mo- second most important holiday in the Chris- Christian calendar after Easter, although most people treat it like the most important one. Today is the day that we celebrate, in the most special way, God coming down to Earth taking on human flesh. So I guess we'll start with this very broad question. We hear a lot about getting into the Christmas spirit, but what is the real spirit of Christmas? Apocalyptic! Apocalyptic! (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No? I mean, possibly. I tried, I tried. All right, let's throw it over to the experts. (laughs) I think everything should be apocalyptic, you know? Everything is apocalyptic. Yeah. 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 I mean, yes, but... Everything is always looking forward to the eschaton, looking forward towards the yes. end time. Indeed, mm-hmm. indeed. We and as about... we... Oh, and as we celebrate the first coming of Christ, we're also looking forward to the second, right? So let's talk about why that first coming of Christ was significant in human history. Why this was something beyond just a baby being born, but what it means for Jesus to actually be fully God and fully man. Mm. And why that ultimately becomes apocalyptic. <laughs> That's a good place to start. Yes. The incarn- like- Go ahead. Go ahead, Aiden. Oh, the, the incarnation is, as Maria was saying, God becoming man. Which, in and of itself, is just an incredible just shift from omnipotence and omniscience on all of the infinite attributes of God to the limitation of human flesh, and particularly the limitation of being born as a child. And, like, I think it's very easy for us to think about Jesus, you know, being born poor um, as something, as, as an incredible descent. You know, he was king of the universe. Why wasn't he born into some wealthy, you know, up family or whatever? You know, why wasn't he, like, Herod's second cousin who would oh, then dear. conquer him or rule over him? You know, whatever. Like, <laughs> but I think that even more radical than his poverty his poverty is radical, is the fact that he reduces himself from an infinity to a finitude. Like, that is already a a significantly larger difference than we can even begin to imagine. It's literally a difference we can't conceive of because we're finite beings. Um, And so so for gods to come, like, stepping down infinities to reduce himself into a human form, especially that of a child born in the stable amongst animals, is... It's one of the two great mysteries of the Catholic faith. I mean, the mystery of the incarnation and the mystery of the Paschal mystery. It's the two great mysteries of Jesus' life. Yeah. And ultimately then, that poverty, the 
the poverty of Christ being born into a poor family is ultimately just a reflection of the greater descent that he made that you're speaking of. The, mm-hmm. the, yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't make sense for God to be born as a rich child, honestly, because the descent from being God to being a human child is so significant that adding material wealth would... Yeah. It makes literally no difference. Right. Yeah. There, There's no difference yeah. in the strength of his descent, and so it was more fitting for Christ to be born poor, because he's already self-emptying just to become human. Yeah, whether God, whether, whether God was born as the child of a Roman emperor or the child of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem, it really doesn't like... like It's not a sacrifice. It's not a greater sacrifice to be born as some poor, like, thing. Re- not, I mean, technically it is, but, like, in, in the grand scale of things, when you're talking about infinity, infinitude, there's just a difference in kind and not of degree. But what is it that we, not necessarily, I'm not, not necessarily universally, but what is it of the fact that so much is made of Jesus as sort of being born on on the margins, and we find so much mm. more, so much more meaning in that difference in degree than that difference in kind. At times, not universally, think, but it's easy to forget, just... especially in in attempts to, to like to be pastoral. It's easy to forget the massive gap that was traversed and focus on just that last mm-hmm. little bit from like Herod's mm-hmm. nephew to, you know, born in the stable. Why? And I, th- I think part of the reason why that's so striking for us is because that's just what, like when, when we're thinking about the human condition, the extremes are, you know, extreme power, wealth, et cetera, and extreme poverty, no power, et cetera. And I think that, there's an analogy to be drawn on a finite scale between God coming from infinite power, majesty, glory to a finite place of power, majesty, and glory. Um, like, humans have no perfections whatsoever. Like, if he were an angel, for example, he'd still have a perfect intellect, stuff like that. But humans have no sort of perfections about them whatsoever. Every single one of our capacities is finite and limited. Every single one of them coming from a God for whom every single capacity is infinite and unlimited. And so I think part of the reason why we think so much about Christ's poverty, in addition to the fact that he was just born poor, is because it draws a really powerful and gripping analogy for us of the level of descent that we're talking about in the Incarnation. Christ goes everywhere, so nowhere is outside Christ, even the poorest of us. And ultimately that actually helps to remove some of the preconceived notions we may have about God and ultimately about what it means mm. to be the, not just a leader, but just to be God. Because this was a big thing in the Gospels, actually, that the the Jewish people of the time expected God to come as a conqueror, as like a worldly yeah. leader who would drive out the Romans. Mm-hmm. And not the radical gospel and poverty and sacrifice, self-sacrifice of Christ. And so it draws our attention to God's true nature, his true nature of self-giving love. And another interesting contrast maybe we can talk about then, since we're kind of starting by focusing on the poverty of Christ, is (laughs) speaking more towards the secular spirit of Christmas, and how there's something of a contrast there, because I... Mm. Radical poverty and radical self-emptying is certainly not in the secular lexicon when it comes to Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was at Mass this morning, and the priest was talking about how 
we hear on the radio, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But many times, many times we're just caught up in the busyness and having to buy the next thing. And if I buy this, like, oh, my Christmas will be satisfied. But mm. we're just caught up in the hecticness of it all. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, and there's something really beautiful about gift giving at Christmas. Like, it came out of a really beautiful tradition. A, of, you know, the gift of God to us, meaning that we should, you know, continue giving to others. I mean, what is it that the, the last part of the Our Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those, or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, we are called to give of ourselves in, because in response to God giving himself at Christmas in the Incarnation, well, and through the rest of Christ's life, and as Christ continues to do through his church, etc. Um, and I think that we've totally lost the sense of what that actually yeah. entails as regard to giving things for Christmas. It's no longer about a self-giving act of love. It's more about, you know, fulfilling some social convention or whatever the case may be. Right. It's more, it's more about receiving presents than giving presents. Mm. Would yeah. be maybe a good lens to look at it. And in that, actually, in that case, looking at it through the lens of, like, Christmas and the actual Christmas narrative, in some sense, that's a form of like, it's a form of pride and self divinization. Because yeah, if you look at the Christmas a form of story, idolatry. yeah. Because well, exactly, yeah. if you look at the like, the gospel narrative in Luke, the person receiving gifts is Christ. Mm-hmm. Is Christ? Oh yeah, the Magi. Yeah, yeah exactly, like, exactly. So, so yeah. by changing the focus Luke. of the season from giving gifts and giving ourselves to receiving things from other people, yeah. it's not just made it more selfish. In some sense, it's a kind of self divinization. Yeah, it's a violation of the first commandment in a very literal sense. Perhaps not as intentionally or as consciously as might it's otherwise. An accidental happen. violation of the first commandment. Right, yeah. it's it's more subtle, but it's definitely not a good thing to be promoting at Christmas because it places us in the shoes of Christ in a self-aggrandizing way rather than a self-emptying way. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate what was said, but I think it, there's a chance it can be taken. Um, I think we just want to make sure we're clear. Are we objecting just because it, it can be understood as in a more dramatic way than we might have meant it? Are we saying that, I don't think we're saying that any gift receiving is idolatry, correct? Because there was no modifier on what <laughs> no, you yeah. said. No. It's that, that not wrong fair. to receive gifts from your family or whatever at Christmas. No, it is not wrong. But <laughs> it's the, when that's the and focus, in fact, that's become a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, and oftentimes, like, receiving a gift is as important, in some senses, as giving it. Like, that's the journey of the Christian life, is receiving the gift that Christ gave us. We have to be able to receive gifts as well as to give them to others. But I think receiving a gift is always about the person giving it, and about God, more importantly than anything else, it's about God. Actually, yeah, that's the thing. Receiving gifts is certainly a not a negative thing, but... It is, it's necessary in order to give gifts, because yeah. focusing on the lens or the, the, the telos of Christmas being a sort of self-emptying for us, mimicking and participating in Christ's self-emptying, then in order to give gifts, there has to be someone willing to receive those gifts. Yeah. And also, like, in order to give gifts, something has to be given to you. You can't give what you haven't received, in a very strict True. sense. True. And that's a, that's a saying amongst a lot of spiritual directors and spiritual followers, that you cannot give what you can't receive. And so it's impor- receiving is important, but giving 
but it has to be giving out of what you receive, out of your sort of self-emptying imitation of Christ. Yes. And so maybe the issue isn't... The, yeah, you're right, Julie. It's not, the, it's not the fact of giving and receiving, but the fact that it's not done in the Spirit of Christ. And speaking of giving in the Spirit of Christ, since it's Christmas, it might be good to talk about St. Nicholas. <laughs> well, he gave something in the Spirit of Christ. Um, well, I'm thinking more along the lines of, for those who don't... Because like, I'm sure there's people listening who don't know the actual like story of St. Nicholas and how that turned into Santa Claus. Um, I, I would hope most people know that Santa Claus is based on an actual Catholic saint from the early church, St. Yeah. Nicholas. Fourth century uh, Turkish yeah, bishop. Yes, yes. And the legend... I, I, his name, uh, colloquially sort of, is St. Nicholas the Wonder Worker, simply because he had a lot of really interesting miracles. For example, and then this is where a lot of actually Christmas traditions come out of. Um, there's a story of a, a poor, uh, like a poor family in the city where Saint Nicholas was a bishop, who like didn't have dowries for their three daughters. And so, what would a dowry happen- for people who don't know what a dowry is yeah. when in in ancient times, in medieval times, when a husband and wife got married, the wife had to give a portion. The wife's family had to give a portion of her money to the father's family for the support of the wife. And so a dowry was that portion of property or money that was given from the father's family, or from the wife's family, to the husband's family. Right. And, and so this poor family, as, as the story goes, didn't have the money to pay for dowries for their three daughters. So St. Nicholas somehow knew this, and actually for a couple nights would throw bags of money into the open window, and they would land inside the stockings, hanging over their fireplace. Which actually is the source of why we put out Christmas stockings nowadays, and why we conceive of Santa Claus as a person who gives gifts. So there's actually a grounding for that in Christian history, in the, um, oh, why can't I think of the word, hagiography, the, the hagiography of St. Nicholas. And in Europe, often, St. Nicholas's Day is the day that's kept um, for gift-giving and things like that. Um, it's not Christmas Day in particular. It's either St. Nicholas's Day or Epiphany in a lot of countries in Europe, and even outside Europe as well. And rather than placing presents under a Christ- Christmas tree, they'll put shoes out and fill up mm, shoes. Yes, that's the thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so our secular Christmas traditions are very much inspired by mm-hmm. a Catholic saint. Um, <laughs> that saint also had a bit of a... Although... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. One more, now, we'll stay on the topic of St. Nicholas, since you're clearly going somewhere with this. Well, I don't know exactly where we're going to end up, but it's important, like, if we're talking about St. Nicholas, he's not the most well-known for giving presents to families in need. He's the most well-known for punching a heretic at the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, <laughs> um, a very yes. prominent heretic by the name of Arius. Yeah. St. Nicholas so angry that he, uh, as the documents say, vexed his beard. That's the phrase that was used <laughs> to describe St. <laughs> Nicholas striking the heretic Bishop Arius in the face yes. at the Council of Nicaea. That's a, so... Appropriately, it was over a Christological heresy. So. <laughs> Actually, true, true. This was... Actually, it's a really good connection now that I think hey, about it. Here, H- have you heard about the song "I Saw Santa Punching Arius" sung to "I Saw"? Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, oh boy! No. And the lyrics go: "I saw Santa punching Arius in the council chambers at Nicaea. He just couldn't stand to hear the heretic exp- expand his theory of how our blessed Lord was not much more than just a man." <laughs> 
Yes. So to actually focus on that point seriously, though, Bea, I think it is actually rather appropriate that the heresy St. Nicholas was attacking, or the, the Catholic truth he was defending, is that Christ was fully God. Yeah. Because Arius denied the divinity of Christ. Um, so ultimately, St. Nicholas is actually a very good patron of Christmas in that sense, because as we were saying earlier, Christmas is truly the celebration of God becoming man and the full significance, the radical significance of that, that we mm-hmm. still can't grasp and that ultimately won't become clear until the end of time. Um, yeah. So it is, I think, rather appropriate that the saint that has become most associated with the holiday, even in a secular sense, is a saint known for defending the divinity and humanity of Christ incarnate. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's important to remember, though, for the audience, whenever you see Santa Claus being celebrated in a secular sense, the actual person was a bit of a hot-tempered defender of Catholic truth, rather than an elf who lives in the North Pole. And a nice, jolly old man who just ran around laughing all the time. Yeah. It's actually... I just really like the direction that this conversation is going, because I live in Salt Lake City right now, which is Mormon Central. And for people who don't know, <laughs> Mormons believe they are essentially polytheistic. The Holy Spirit is separate from the Father and the Son, and the Father is literally... Like a father of Jesus, Jesus was so the the father, the God, the Father is a divine being. Jesus is a human who was so good that he was adopted as a divine son of Christ. So three separate gods. This is literally Arianism. Yeah. yeah. So three separate gods, um, essentially polytheistic, right? And the Mormons love Christmas, and they use a lot of Christmas. Specifically, Catholic Christmas symbolism in they have nativity scenes everywhere and they have a lot of Catholic hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's absolutely fascinating because I live right by Temple Square, which is like their St. Peter's Basilica, basically. And um, they have no incarnational basis for it, but yet they use symbols and imagery and songs which proclaim that Christ is God become man. It's a really beautiful attempt, I think, on their part. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Christmas really is that celebration of God, the fullness of, like, the divine being himself, second person of the Trinity, not some su- subordinate created being, not some human that was yep. promoted to divinity, but God himself. God himself. Incarnate as a human being. Oh, although, it's kind of fitting that if, um, the the sort of the religious point the religious heart of the holiday it, it's impossible to miss that at Easter um like you like people realize like what's an Easter mm. like secular yeah. America realizes like what the heck what's an Easter but it doesn't really make sense this is a Christian holiday and it, <laughs> the secular celebration reflects that more yeah but on Christmas it is so lost so it's kind of appropriate that the holiday about um like Christ coming down and humility and the incarnation and all of these sorts of, of, of mm. lessening of self, um, and it, the point gets lost, because if you lower yourself, sometimes you, will, you, do get, you do get lost. I don't know. I don't know how to express it quite right, but... Yeah. That's a really cool point. I feel very Christmas that way, but I think I will in the future. <laughs> Another sort of, like, less theological and more historical point about Christmas, but this is a thing that circulates everywhere, 
is that the timing of Christmas comes from the Roman holiday of Saturnalia. Um, oh, this is, yeah, we need to cover this. Oh. Yeah, that is simply incorrect. Um, and, like, even in the 2nd and 3rd century, you have bishops and popes writing letters to each other saying, I don't know where the hell the pagans got this idea, but it's wrong. Squash it, please. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what the date of Christmas comes from is, in the rabbinic tradition, March 25th is the date of the creation of the world. Um, March 25th was also generally understood by Christians because they saw that as the date of the creation of the world. They wanted to symbologically, symbolically make that the date of the redemption of the world. So the crucifixion was set to be on that day. Now, in the medieval tradition, like very prominent personages were conceived on the day that they di- or died on the day on which they were conceived. And so Jesus, if he died on March 25th, would have been conceived on March 25th. Nine months after March 25th is December 25th, which is the date that they set for the birth of Christ. Nothing to do with Roman holidays about the sun, nothing to do with, well, just, it, it, it comes purely out of the Christian and the rabbinic Jewish tradition. Right. Um, and, like, and the reason, like, I, I find this really important is because you hear a lot of people saying, oh, Christmas is just, like, the new Saturnalia, like, the Christians just needed some sort of date for their random holiday, and so they picked the one about the rising sun or whatever. Um, but, in fact, their reasoning was completely separate from any kind of pagan reasoning at all. It came straight out of the Jewish tradition, which I think is important, one, to emphasize the Jewish roots, yes. but two, just to emphasize that, like, Christianity is not just, like, you know, taking this thing this tradition and molding it into whatever they want. Like, you also hear these arguments about the person of Christ, like, born out of a virgin, so was Horus, so was, like, no, all these other, no, so was Buddha, no. like, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, for anyone who wants to... I would, I would recommend the excellent video by the channel Lutheran Satire called Horus Ruins Christmas if you want a good breakdown of... The, most of the Christ comparisons and, are based on very, that, um, very shoddy archaeology. <laughs> Kind of cosmological, I, and is, is that how I would consider? I don't know. Um, the mention to the, these dates, the Annunciation, um, falls around the spring equinox, and wouldn't that be like the 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 where there's most light? Correct. This is when. Um, but then, um, yeah, it's summer solstice. Oh, I'm I'm incorrect. Uh, here, summer solstice. Would be I, I just want to get to the point where Christmas lies around the winter equinox because Christ comes as a light in the midst of the darkness. And this is when there's most darkness. So, yeah. Mm. Although caution again, because of the thing Dirk is saying, it's not because the pagans in Rome are celebrating some solstice day and they had to go hide in the catacombs. And if they have their help at the same time, they don't get caught. Like there's so many problems with that, but it is poetically fitting. You're I agree with Bea. Yeah. Right, right. And actually, that, that's the claim you find most often, because, like, Saturnalia in the Roman calendar fell around this time, around the winter solstice, but the claim yeah. you hear more often is that Christianity was made to overlap with the Feast of Sol Invictus, the Invincible Sun, for that the exact reason, sun. because yeah. the, the whole the light coming in the midst of the darkness. Only problem is, because the Sol Invictus did fall on exactly December 25th, just like Christmas. Because, so, in, cosmologically speaking... After the winter solstice, there are three days where the sun rises in the exact same spot in the sky. But on December 25th, it, mo- it begins moving again in, yeah. cer- in certain moderates of the calendar. And so the Romans took that to be like a sign of the invincible sun, which could not be stopped by the winter, etc. 
Right. There's only one problem with that theory as a precursor to Christmas. The first document we have, the first Roman calendar that includes a marking of the feasts of Sol Invictus, is from the 2nd century AD and also includes Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so the earliest attestation we have for the Feast of Sol Invictus suggests it was, like, an attempt by the pagans to co-opt Christmas and not the other way around. That is something that was going on. Like, that... Like, that's not oh, that's an ironic co-op Christmas. Like, I do not have... I have not looked into this enough to say for sure. But the pagans did start trying to make up holidays because Christianity was becoming competitive. I don't know if the timing works out in this case, yeah. but they did start trying to have more of these traditions and whatever because they saw they were attractive to Christians. And thought, maybe we can get some pagans back. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Wow, I wish it was that simple today. I wish we had that... Well, I don't wish we were persecuted... Like they're the Christmas war, but I wish we had that problem of the the pagans want to copy Christianity. <laughs> well, they yeah. do Christmas. Well, I mean, yeah, there's a good point. Yeah, people celebrate Christmas. Saint Valentine's Day, like oh, for goodness sake! Uh, Valentine's Day, Saint Patrick's <laughs> Halloween. Day. Except they're just they're creating a new holiday. But oh, yeah, all Hallows Eve. Halloween. Yeah, yeah, they're creating a new holiday, but they're just calling it by the same name as the old Christian one. <laughs> And it's worse because they're preserving, like, 25% of the Christian elements, getting rid of all the important ones. Yeah. (sighs) So, secular rant on holidays concluded. Yes. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, maybe to draw things back in, do we want to talk about, like, we talked about this with the Advent episode last time on, like, how do we really celebrate Advent as Christians? Mm. Maybe we should draw it back to this focus for Christmas. How do we really celebrate Christmas as Christians with all this theology mm. in mind? I think one is to just... It's its not quite as much of an action item as it is, like, a thing to direct your thought towards. As regards, like, think about the Incarnation. Think about the amazingness of God taking on matter, of God taking on finite form, as the basis of everything we do at Christmas. Because it is the basis of everything that we do at Christmas. At least it was the basis of, of the way that Christmas developed. And I think in a world where, as we were talking a little bit earlier, especially like Aiden was talking about, like about a tendency to turn ourselves into divine beings, to violate the first commandment, to do self-idolatry, keep being mindful of the actual infinite being who took on our matter as an act of pure self-giving charity. Reflecting on that, I think, would help keep us in, like, you know, keep us at our station, not to forget that we are the low, poor being that God deigned to join himself to. Yes. We're, 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 we are the animals at the manger, sort of, <laughs> in some sense. Like, Well, we have souls. Oh. Well, <laughs> independent of that, but, like, you know what I mean. Like, we are at that low, poor state yeah. in which God joined himself. We're the, we're the manger into which God is born every time we receive the sacrament, every time we receive the Eucharist, every time, you know, we have to be like that poor, humble place because Christ was that poor, humble place. And we are that poor, humble place, whether we recognize it or not. That I was beautiful. No. You're good, you're good. So, yeah, building off that, I think if you are to look at, like, the secular elements that are preserved in terms of the Christmas spirit, <clears throat> in terms of, like, fraternity and charity and all of those sorts of things. Those ultimately have to be grounded in what Jarek just said. You have to be grounded in an appreciation of Christmas as the season when the infinite God in all of his majesty 
descends and participates fully in the lowliness and poverty and limitations of humanity. And so because of that, because of that charity, this is a season where charity towards all is very fitting. Because it only is a reflection and a mirror of what Christ did for us. Any other thoughts on Christmas celebrations? Like, Christmas music, for example, might be a good... (laughs) brief topic of discussion, simply because that can be minorly controversial. Oh, yeah, like... I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus is not an ideal song to be listening to at Christmas. Oh, it's like, it's got catchy or whatever, is it? It's like, it misses something. As a lot of secular music does, it misses something serious about this, the nature of what Christmas is. And that's not to say, oh, you can't listen to secular Christmas music. Like, I listen to secular Christmas music. A lot of it is really, really good. Um, but, uh, I think just... Arguable, but carry on. <laughs> A lot, I think a lot of it is good music. A lot of it is catchy. A lot of it is, you know, captures, you know, like, because even if it is a sacred holiday, it is also a secular holiday. Yeah. It is both of those things. And holding those two in tension is going to be a struggle for every person who is a Christian. Um, but I think, like, getting yourself caught up in the secular spirit of Christmas while forgetting the the sacred one is a problem, especially as regards to music, because music is everything. Yeah, actually, and I think traditional Christmas carols, like Christmas hymns, if you will, I don't really quite know how the different song terms work out, um, might be a, could be a very useful tool in in pointing out to people, wait, this is actually a religious holiday, because there are yeah. two fairly distinct classes. There's yep. the religious Christmas songs and the not. Um and I mean, even just the other yeah. day, I was I was humming "God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen," and then I started half singing it, and my mom heard me say "Satan," and she's like, "Wait, what? What? What?" But the lyrics, if you actually listen to so many Christmas carols, like religious hymns, generally have some catechetical value. If we're talking about good tradition, well, most of them. We don't need yeah. to go into all sacred music, but uh, <laughs> Christmas yeah. carols still fall into this category, and. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan power, from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Like, there's a reason they don't play them on the radio. Yeah. And that's the reason for the tidings. Of <laughs> to save us all yeah. from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Like, oh, goodness. Or hymns like Hark Ye Herald Angels Sing. Like, it's, I mean, it's full of dogmatic theological statements. St. Nicholas would be very proud. Well, except... Mary, did you know? Um, Oh, (laughs) that's it. Separate. (laughs) The answer for everybody listening is... Yes. Yes. Almost certainly yes. (laughs) The enunciation was a thing, guys. She knew. (laughs) It's it's interesting that as we're moving into... um, I don't know, since the radio era, and we now have this whole galaxy of the secular, poppy-style Christmas carols. In It's interesting that another way that they contrast with traditional Christmas hymns is that they're harder for one person to sing without a synthesizer and an electric guitar and everything. And it's a very <laughs> subtle... Yeah thing but it definitely moves it towards um 
I'm sorry, my brain just woke up and I haven't had coffee, but it moves it. These more, <laughs> yeah, these more okay, secular songs, something like I Saw Mama Kissing Santa Claus or Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Incredibly hard to sing without a full synthesizer exactly and guitar and things like that. And it turns Christmas carols into something yeah. that's performative, something that is in a way a small clip of idolatry, right? That you're listening to this amazing singer do it. You're not participating in it yourself. Um, mm -hmm. Make of that what you will. I don't know. Yeah. If, if we're talking about active participation in any sense of the phrase active participation, like, <laughs> sacred, like music for holidays outside the liturgy is the place where participation should be the most active. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, like, and all, pretty much all the classic carols are written for four-part harmony, and the melodies aren't super difficult, and whatever, like, you can sing it by yourself, you can sing it, like, without any sort of accompaniment whatsoever. In other words, um, listen to Jarek's mic drop right there, and, and drop the mic. Just, just sing it yourself. <laughs> do oh! it! Do it! <laughs> it was very that bad. Was, that was tragic. That was... Give it a whirl, Jarek. Oh, that's funny. You want to sing us? Sing for um, us, Jarek. <laughs> do I? No, not really. <laughs> Isn't that we like can't sing together on the podcast. Four? No, no, we can't. Hey, but there are four of us. But there's no active participation. Then there's no active participation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're just listening to someone myself, else singing. I'm, I'm, I'm committing an act of self-idolatry. <laughs> and the rest of us are committing an act of Jarek. <laughs> yeah, please don't do that. Please, definitely don't do that. religion. <laughs> Um, like Joseph. Nope. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> On a podcast about Christmas starting a new religion is unadvisable. Oh yeah, let's go. Oh, dear. <laughs> let's go. Oh. oh dear, let's not. Well, I, well, okay. All right. If Jarek isn't going to entertain us, do you guys have any uh, artist recommendations for the people at home listening? Of any current any current musicians who are kind of bridging this gap between songs that are going into the the popular consciousness, but also preserve the like some of the traditional meaning of Christmas. Yeah, yeah, the Christmas album is really good. Oh yeah, I was thinking Suf John Stevens. In in general, I think the Pentatonix is pretty overrated and mediocre, but their Christmas stuff is in, is fairly good and does cross that divide fairly well. They do both the sacred stuff and the secular stuff. Yes. And on that note, a thing to avoid might be Mannheim Steamroller, <laughs> simply because Mannheim Steamroller stuff is very well known, but it's all very... It sounds like the synthesizer track behind a pop song. Even when they're playing, like, Joy to the World. So... And like it's a cool, like musically speaking, it's a cool take on a classic oh, Christmas course. carol. But like, and it's not like morally wrong to listen to it if you think the music is good. It's just but not like, good Christmas reflection music or Christmas hymn. Music. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't capture the. The point of it is the music. Yeah. The point of it is, oh, this is amazing sounding music, and not can this music make me think about something even more amazing? I.e., the fact that I became man. It's like Maria said. It's the performance. Yeah. It's the it's the attention. It's theatrical. And that's okay for music, but. It's not like, yeah, rosary. But it's not the most Christmassy music. Yes. Yeah. Well, hey, though. I want to bring things all back together with this reflection, because, like, there's a, there is some sense in, in which, like, 
traditional Christmas music has gotten not not fully buried, but in a good deal buried in the popular culture by like the Mariah Careys and the I saw mommy kissing Santa Clauses. And there's there's a good sense in which like we have lost that culturally speaking that about like focus on the proper place of Christmas. I think that's sort of been the theme of the entire podcast. Honestly, that the true spirit of Christmas in a religious sense, in the Catholic sense, is very different than what the secular culture perceives. Mm-hmm. But to draw this all together, I do want to go back to a point Julie made earlier that Jerry, you appreciated a lot, which is that that is sort of fitting to Christmas as a holiday, honestly, and that. Christmas being a thing that is ignored by the culture is nothing new at all. G.K. Chesterton had a great story on this called The Shop of Ghosts, and I'd recommend that anyone who's listening to this read it, because it's an excellent short story. It's only like three or four paragraphs. Um, But the point being, both the story and here, is that Christmas has always been a holiday that's been passing away. It's always been a holiday that's been looked over by the culture. From the very beginning, from Christ being born in a manger up until the present. So there's a very solid sense in which it's fitting for Christmas to be ignored by most of the culture, and that is where its strength lies. Its strength lies in that humility, in that hiddenness, in only being found by the humble and the wise, the shepherds and the magi. And that ultimately that holiday passes away both in being overlooked by the culture and in leading to the even more, the, the even more important mystery in Christ's life, the passion and crucifixion and resurrection. So, it's important, to, in other words, to realize that Christmas is not is kind of lost in our culture. But it's also important to keep in mind that Christmas has always been lost. It's always it's been culture. passing away, and that is where its power lies. And this is a sort of, I guess, response to like the whole, like, they are killing Christmas sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, and I think maybe the focus should be less on, like, oh, you must keep Christ in Christmas, and more about as a culture speaking, and more about, oh, the individual must keep Christ in Christmas. In a place where, like, the language of Christmas being under attack is not one that I particularly subscribe to, nor is it one that I like very much, because it's not very helpful. And in fact, I think if Christmas became more publicly religious, we would, it would start watering it down yeah. even more. In some sense, it's a good thing that there are two separate holidays with the same name, one secular, one sacred, and the sacred one is very small, because it lets the people who want to celebrate the sacred one keep it, like, sort of pure of any sort of, like, problematic influence. Indeed. So on that note, I believe we'll wrap up the podcast, wishing you all a very Merry Christmas, and we'll close the prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grant us, O Lord, minds to know you, hearts to seek you, wisdom to find you, conduct pleasing to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and a hope of finally embracing you. Amen. Amen.